You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, March 15th, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the latest NPR News headlines, we'll have the California Report from KQED Public Radio with a story on museums and theaters opening at limited capacity in Los Angeles County. National Native News reports on the historic nomination of Representative Deb Holland, who is poised to take the post of Secretary of the Interior and become the first Native American in the U.S. Cabinet. And after a roundup of regional news and weather, Al Stoller will be here to talk about how our knowledge of the virus and the vaccines is evolving. For their generous support of KVMR, we'd like to thank Ben Franklin Crafts, celebrating National Craft Month by offering classes, demonstrations, and more. For arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, knitting, and more, information about National Craft Month celebration online at benfranklin-crafts.com. And Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley. Stocking greenhouse frames, coverings, and components, down-to-earth amendments, and IPM products. Open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Now hiring, Carmen's, K-A-R-M-E-N-S, garden.com. Here are the latest headlines from National Public Radio. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden continues his push to promote the nearly $2 trillion coronavirus relief package he signed into law last week. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Biden is slated to kick off a nationwide tour starting tomorrow to tout the specifics of the legislation. President Biden has tapped longtime White House economic advisor Gene Sperling to oversee the implementation of the relief plan. Biden says Sperling will be responsible for ensuring that the benefits in the package go out quickly and directly to where they belong. That's our job. That's our responsibility. And in the process, we'll be growing the economy as well. We're going to have to stay on top of every dollar spent through the American Rescue Plan. And that's what we're going to do. Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are kicking off a nationwide tour this week to help promote the details of the package. The president will travel to Pennsylvania on Tuesday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. U.S. officials say they've arrested two men in connection with the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick during the January 6th assault on the Capitol building by supporters of former President Donald Trump. Officials say those arrested were believed to have sprayed several police officers, including Sicknick, with bear spray during the assault. It was not clear that caused the officer's death. 39-year-old George Tanios of Morgantown, West Virginia, and 32-year-old Julian Cater of Pennsylvania were arrested over the weekend. Investigators initially believed Sicknick was hit in the head with a fire extinguisher, but also looking at whether being sprayed by the chemical irritant may have caused his death. Militia leader Ammon Bundy has been arrested again in Idaho. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports Bundy has been charged with failure to appear in court 
after refusing to wear a mask at a scheduled hearing. Ammon Bundy, who was acquitted in 2016 after leading an armed takeover of a federal wildlife refuge in Oregon, has been traveling around the Northwest during the pandemic, flouting mask laws and other public health measures. He had been scheduled to appear in a Boise court in connection with an illegal protest he led last fall inside the Idaho Capitol. A viral video at that time showed Bundy handcuffed to an office swivel chair being wheeled out of the building by police. But he and another militiaman got into a reported scuffle Monday with authorities outside their hearing room after refusing to wear masks, which are required in the Ada County, Idaho courthouse. Bundy is now being held on a $10,000 bond. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. Online payment company Stripe continues to attract investors. The company raising $600 million in funding to reach a whopping company valuation of $95 billion. That makes Stripe by far the most valuable private financial tech company in the world. Robinhood, the trading platform recently making headlines, just raised $3 billion to reach a valuation of $11.2 billion. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 174 points. You're listening to NPR. State lawmakers in Texas have passed legislation to retroactively lower last month's sky-high electricity prices. The move comes after a week of finger-pointing between state officials. As Texas Public Radio's Dominic Anthony Walsh reports, the bill is likely to have a multi-billion dollar impact if signed into law. According to the Independent Market Monitor, there were about $16 billion in overcharges during the final days of the storm. But repricing will have a smaller impact because so many companies both buy and sell electricity. The state Senate hastily passed the bill on Monday, days after a spat between Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Patrick called on the state's public utility commission to lower prices, but Abbott said that agency, the members of which he appoints, doesn't have that power, and he told state lawmakers to take action. The bill says the commission does have the ability to retroactively lower prices, and it instructs the agency to do so. I'm Dominic Anthony Walsh in San Antonio. The Denver airport remained shut down for a second straight day after a powerful storm hit the Rockies, dumping upwards of three feet of snow in parts of Colorado and Wyoming. Storm also closing major roadways, the state legislatures in both states, and interfering with COVID vaccinations. More than two feet of snow was measured at Denver International Airport, making it the fourth largest snowfall in that city's history. Schools were closed today in the Denver area and in Cheyenne and Casper. Classes were canceled at Colorado State University in Fort Collins and at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Crude oil futures prices closed lower. Oil down 22 cents a barrel to 65.39 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. Starting today, museums, zoos, movie theaters, and gyms in Los Angeles will be allowed to reopen indoors with limited capacity. KPCC's Caroline Champlin has more. All the museums I talked to said they'll need time to get ready. Many have to rehire staff, retrain them, and check safety protocols. The L.A. County Museum of Art is aiming for the end of the month. LACMA CEO Michael Govan says besides hiring staff, the facility is ready to go. You can't even open a bathroom door here. It's all touchless. So not only is the art space touchless, you can't touch art, of course, but now you can't even touch the bathroom doors. Greg Lemley, president of Lemley Theaters, says it'll take at least a month to open. But he's confident that people are eager to come back after a year of streaming. Part of that experience was recognizing how much better it is to see a movie in a movie theater and how much they miss it and, you know, how much they're really going to treasure 
you know, that opportunity once they can do it again. The short-term question, Lemley says, is figuring out if it's cost-effective to open with just 25% capacity. For the California Report, I'm Caroline Champlin in Los Angeles. Those reopenings are happening as L.A. County is one of 13 across the state that's moved to the less restrictive red tier. In neighboring Orange County, which has also moved to the red tier, some movie theaters and restaurants got a head start welcoming guests over the weekend. More than a dozen other counties, including Sacramento and San Diego, are expected to get official word tomorrow that they're moving to the red tier, which would leave only a handful of counties in the most restrictive purple tier. In the Central Valley, the Kern County Latino COVID-19 Task Force has launched a new hotline to help older non-English speakers schedule COVID-19 vaccine appointments. As Valley Public Radio's Mari Balaños reports, Project Abuelita has already received over 800 calls. Project Abuelita is an extension of the task force's mental health hotline that was created to help people cope with the pandemic. It's a place to have callers call that may not have internet or may not have a computer. That's hotline manager Bianca Torres. She's received a lot of calls from farm workers, people in the education sectors, and people who are 65 years and older. Some just don't know how the process works. You know, some of them are on the verge of crying when they call because they say that they have no family members. They say, like, you know, all their family members have passed. They don't have any young, young people to help them with the website. And if they need help getting to their appointment, Torres says she directs them to some of the local transportation services, like Dial-A-Ride, that provides free transportation for vaccine appointments in Delano. For the California Report, I'm Mari Bolaños. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Personal Capital helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. In October, bankrupt opioid giant Purdue Pharma settled with the U.S. Department of Justice over its role in helping start our nation's opioid crisis. Well, later today, Purdue Pharma puts out its plan to reorganize the company. Earlier, I spoke with the author of the new book, Bad Medicine, Charlotte Bismuth, who's followed the case. I began by asking her what Purdue Pharma might look like after bankruptcy. One of the options, of course, was liquidation. Another option was a sale to another private owner. And in fact, what the Purdue Pharma, the Sacklers, and the DOJ have endorsed is turning the company into a so-called public benefit company that would be owned by the very people whom it harmed, the creditors, including the states, cities, tribal governments, and individuals. And they would continue to sell OxyContin to fund a trust. And I want to be clear, you said DOJ, that's the U.S. Department of Justice is endorsing that approach uh, that you just laid out. I think what's so striking is this idea that in order to help treat and compensate past victims of opioids that were peddled by this company, by Purdue Pharma, um, we need to, (laughs) the idea is that we will sell more opioids from this new company to help pay for that. It's a puzzling proposal. It's one that raises so many questions. Who would operate the company? 
we have understood from some of the judges' musings during hearings that there would be a board, an independent board to operate and oversee the company, that the um, maximization of profits would explicitly not be one of the company's goals, that it would be oriented toward the public interest. But you know, pharmaceutical historians and attorneys um, for victims of the opioid epidemic have raised some very good points, which is this has never worked before. We're not sure that the company is economically viable. There's a huge conflict of interest for the states regulating the sale of OxyContin, and you're putting the people who were harmed in charge of selling the product that harmed them. Yeah, we can't underscore that point enough. And it's similar to the PG&E bankruptcy that just ended here in Northern California, in that in both bankruptcies, in Purdue Pharma and PG&E, you have victims of those companies being left beholden to the future profitability of that company that hurt them for compensation. I I do want to talk to you about your new book, Bad Medicine, about Stan Lee, a doctor in New York who's business model, really, was selling opioid prescriptions. Um, Can you talk about your role as a prosecutor putting Dr. Lee on trial and then going on to write about it? Absolutely. Well, the Dr. Lee case is really from the front lines of the opioid epidemic. And the themes of the case and the book, which are greed, pain, justice, are those that we're still struggling with today, not just in the Purdue bankruptcy, but Also, in the cases of several other physicians who recently have been uh, charged and are being prosecuted for the overdose deaths of their patients. Now, um, Dr. Lee was the first physician in New York State to be charged with homicide for the overdose death of his patients. We actually uncovered 16 overdose deaths associated with his practice. The grand jury charged him with homicide on two of those. As you mentioned, he sold prescriptions. He did it in exchange for cash. Uh, He operated a pain clinic one day a week on the weekend, and he saw anywhere from 70 to 100 and sometimes more patients per day. That was Charlotte Bismuth. She's the author of the new book, Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher. And that is the California Report for this Monday, March 15th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks for listening. Next, National Native News reports on how New Mexico Representative Deb Holland's bipartisan style has laid the foundation for her historic nomination as Interior Secretary. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Native people across the country are gearing up to watch the Senate's final vote Monday on the nomination of Deb Holland for Secretary of the Interior. Holland, Laguna, and Hamas Pueblo is one of the first Native American women to serve in Congress. Holly Cook Macaro with Spirit Rock Consulting points to Holland's record in Congress and her ability to connect with Native communities as benefits to lead the Interior Department. Native women, as we all know, have been leading the way for a long time. And, and both in our communities and without. Her approach and her recognition as the highest ranking freshman in introducing and passing legislation in the 116th Congress, the last Congress, uh, she passed more bills than anyone else in her class with bipartisan support. I think that reflects how we work in tribal communities. We don't consider singular views. 
we consider community impacts. We consider everyone that's affected. And I think that Congresswoman Holland will bring that to the interior. And she has a demonstrated track record of doing it as a member of the House. Holland is likely to be confirmed and will be the first Native American cabinet secretary. The Native Organizers Alliance is hosting a virtual watch party starting at 4.30 Eastern. A government official in Ontario, Canada, has apologized to an Indigenous provincial legislator who took the COVID-19 vaccine in a First Nation in an effort to promote vaccine acceptance. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, he accused the MPP of jumping the line to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Premier Doug Ford phoned opposition member Saul Mamakwa on Friday afternoon and offered his apology. The conversation lasted about 90 seconds. Initially, Ford accused him of jumping ahead of the line in Mamakwa's home constituency to get the vaccine. But Mamakwa had been invited to the community of Muskrat Dam Falls by elders. It was to show others in the community who were hesitant about getting the vaccine. Mamakwa made no secret of getting the dose as part of an effort to convince Indigenous people to accept the coronavirus vaccines. Mamakwa says he accepted the apology from Ford. He uh, apologized uh, for attacking me personally during question period. It's not me that he needs to apologize to, but it's, you know, Indigenous people across Ontario uh, to undo the, the, jam- the damage. Mamakwa says Ford showed a lack of understanding of on-reserve Indigenous people. He also showed a lack of compassion and a lack of respect for Indigenous people. He also says Ford's response is an example of a colonialist attitude towards First Nations. Governments have made COVID-19 vaccinations for Indigenous people a priority, but Mamakwa says many of them are being missed because they live in cities. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. The Southern Indian Ute Tribe in Colorado has found two cases of the UK COVID-19 variant on tribal lands, which are under investigation, according to a press release from the tribe. The tribe is working with health departments in the state on the investigation. In response to the variants, residents are being encouraged to get tested for COVID-19 at the Tribal Health Center. There are also COVID-19 vaccination appointments at the clinic and upcoming mass vaccination events. The reservation is under public health measures, including stay-at-home orders and mask requirements. The National Park Service determined a ranger who used a taser on a Native American man at Petroglyph National Monument in Albuquerque acted appropriately with policy and circumstances, KOB-TV reports. An investigation was conducted following the December 2020 incident involving Daryl House, who was tased after going off trail. House says he went off the trail to maintain social distancing and was there to pray. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Sanoski Chambers Law Firm, championing tribal sovereignty and defending Native American rights since 1976 with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. 
Starting today, people with certain significant high-risk medical conditions or disabilities are eligible for the COVID-19 vaccines statewide. As always, vaccinations are dependent on available supply. As of today, people ages 16 to 64 are eligible if they are deemed to be at the very highest risk for serious illness from COVID-19. These include people with conditions such as cancer, chronic kidney disease, chronic pulmonary disease, pregnancy, Down syndrome, sickle cell disease, heart conditions, severe obesity, and type 2 diabetes. Eligibility is also extended as of today to people ages 16 and older if they have a developmental or other disability, including regional center consumers and members of the California Children's Services Program who are 16 and over. The state on Friday announced changes to its blueprint for a safer economy after reaching 2 million California residents vaccinated in some of the hardest-hit communities. This milestone triggered an update to the state's tiered system for business reopenings. Nevada County remains in the purple, or widespread, tier. The blueprint changes include updates for operation of breweries, wineries, and distilleries. In Nevada County, the guidelines for the purple tier specify these kinds of businesses can be open outdoors with modifications including reservations, a 90-minute time limit, and an end to on-site consumption by 8 p.m. Food service is no longer required for these businesses to be open. Beginning April 1st, the state has updated its guidance for outdoor events, including sports events and live performances. In the purple tier, the requirements for these events include attendance of 100 people or fewer, advance registration, and no concession sales. The guidelines also say that attendees must live within 120 miles of the event. Once again, those rules go into effect on April 1st. Nevada County Public Health says that as of today, more than 30,000 doses of COVID-19 vaccine have been administered in Nevada County. The state announced that California has administered more than 12 million vaccines. Governor Newsom said today that the COVID-19 case rate dropped 27% in the past week in the state. Newsom said the state positivity rate has dropped to 2%, the fourth lowest in the nation. Due to cold overnight temperatures, Nevada County is opening an overflow emergency shelter in Nevada City tonight through Wednesday morning in partnership with Hospitality House. The shelter at the Veterans Hall at 415 North Pine Street opens at 4.30 p.m. and closes at 7.30 each morning. Capacity is limited to 15 people to accommodate social distancing and other COVID-19 protocols. County staff will screen for the most vulnerable homeless residents to help those in greatest need. Unfortunately, according to the county, it's possible people will be turned away when capacity is reached. Shelter users can receive case management services, transport to and from the shelter, and veteran services. Further assistance for homeless residents can be gained by dialing 211 Connecting Point. The Nevada County Irrigation District announced today that it has added an additional meeting for the public to review its public draft agricultural water management plan. The meeting, at 6 p.m. Thursday, will be the second of three opportunities for the public to learn about NID's water management plan. The public draft of the plan is posted on NID's website and was reviewed at a workshop last week. The final public hearing is expected to be held at the March 24th regular meeting of the NID Board of Directors. 
Submit comments on the plan by sending them by email to info at nidwater.com by the end of the day Tuesday. That's tomorrow. The California Water Code requires agricultural water providers to prepare an agricultural water management plan every five years. The plan must be adopted by the NID board by April 1st and is due to the State Department of Water Resources within 30 days of adoption. NID is holding its meetings via Zoom. Full details are available at nidwater.com prior to the meeting. In other NID doings, you may not know it, but this is Fix-A-Leak Week. Experts estimate that nearly 1 trillion gallons of water are lost to small household leaks each year. Did you know that a showerhead leaking at 10 drips per minute wastes more than 500 gallons per year? That's the amount of water needed to take more than 180 showers. NID encourages its customers to get involved and check their home for leaks. In the regional weather forecast, tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, partly cloudy with an overnight low in the low 30s. On Tuesday, mostly sunny with a high of 51 degrees and a low of 37. In Truckee, cloudy tonight with a low of 18 degrees. Mostly sunny in Truckee Tuesday with a high of 45 degrees and a low of 18. In Sacramento, clear tonight with a low of 33 degrees. Mainly sunny on Tuesday in Sacramento with a high of 60 degrees and a low of 37. Day by day, week by week, all of us, lay people and scientists alike, are learning more about the virus that causes COVID-19 and the vaccines that aim to vanquish it. Al Stoller of Soundings is here to update us. Viruses can attack us because our bodies are made of jigsaw puzzles. Viruses make themselves into shapes that fit into our jigsaw puzzles, and then they take over. Vaccines do not kill viruses. Vaccines do not cure viral infections. Vaccines do nothing but buy time. A few days, maybe a week. Our immune system attacks a virus the same way we attack a jigsaw puzzle, by finding pieces that fit. Once the immune system finds a piece that fits the virus, it attacks and destroys the virus. Part of our immune system goes on the defense as soon as the virus shows up. But other parts of the immune system cannot react so fast. These parts of the immune system can take days, even weeks, to ramp up, which gives the virus time to ramp up its own numbers. By the time the immune system gets up to speed, it may be too late. Vaccines buy time by giving our immune system a glimpse of the viral jigsaw puzzle that's coming. The immune system remembers that glimpse, and if the bug shows up, the immune system has a head start in assembling its own jigsaw puzzle pieces, jigsaw puzzle pieces that will fit the oncoming virus. So the immune system gets a few extra days, maybe a week, to fight off the virus while viral numbers are still low. Sounds like problem solved, but not quite. There's a meadow near where I live that every spring bursts out with foot-high wildflowers. But the past couple of years, my neighbor's been mowing the meadow, which meant, I figured, the end of those wildflowers. What I had not noticed in past years 
was that among the foot-high flowers were a few flowers blooming when they were only a couple inches high. The mower leaves those flowers be, and now the meadow is again filled with flowers, not a foot high, but all of them just a couple inches. Under pressure from the mower, the wildflowers in the meadow are evolving before my eyes. Under pressure from our immune system, the virus also evolves. It constantly experiments, changing the shape of its jigsaw puzzle pieces. With different shaped puzzle pieces, the virus might find itself fitting even better into the human jigsaw puzzle, giving the virus a better shot at infecting us. And if the virus changes the shape of its puzzle pieces, it could get harder for our immune system to spot the virus. The COVID-19 virus is evolving. There's been guarded optimism that new strains, new variants, would not look so different that our immune system could not jump on them. And for some variants of the virus, that is true. But in a paper released by the journal Nature last Monday, some of the new variants have been seen escaping the new vaccines. Vaccines still work on the original virus, but not as well on some of the new variants. The researchers reporting this work recommend continued use of the vaccines, both to guard against the original virus and to prevent yet more variants arising from it. Vaccinated or not, it's up to our immune system to fight off the virus. A strong immune system demands plenty of exercise, healthy food, and sleep. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, the Beer Show celebrates its fourth anniversary with a tribute to its founder, our late beloved Wesley Robertson. The Suds Buds, Tom and McHale, reminisce about the Beer Show's beginnings, and if you stay tuned, you'll hear from Wesley himself. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Have a great evening. Thank you.